Scott, back for another Casey Great. I'm lucky to be joined today by somebody that's kind of got a finger or I guess kind of a probably a stirring stick in everything here in town. Ryan Maybe, who's affiliated with Jay Rieger uh, and company, the, the distillery, the Rieger um, uh, restaurant, Manifesto, and probably a bunch of things I'm not naming, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, you never know. <laughs> well, Ryan, really... Thank you for taking the uh, taking the time today. We're actually at um, the new place down at the riverfront that you're helping with, Barquet, who I had talked to as one of my first podcasts like two years ago. Nice. So you're just involved in everything, man. How did uh, how did you get to this? <laughs> um, started out as a bartender, you know. Okay, and uh, it was one of those, uh, you know, I never. I never looked at bartending as a uh, just a, a job or a means to an end or you know something to bide my time until I got a real job. So I just loved it. I just always loved it, and it didn't take long for me to realize that this is what I want to do for a living. So uh, once that became the case, you know, it certainly uh, evolved into to, well a lot more than I ever really thought it would be. But um, I just love doing it. I, I love being a part of it. I love being connected to the, the hospitality industry. I love being a part of seeing Kansas City grow. So I think in addition like this, like RK is incredibly innovative. Um, I've never seen anything like it before. In Not Kansas, anywhere. It, it, around, the, around the country, honestly. I've never seen anything like this. I mean, it is really ambitious. It's very creative. It's really fun. Um, so fortunately, uh, Leigh Bodell, one of the, the founding uh, partners and owners of this place, is a good friend of mine, and uh, he asked me if I could help with the bar program and, and you know creating cocktails, helping with the sign the bar, and all that. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, I have a hard time saying no to these kinds of things. <laughs> well, that's that's okay. So let me back up a minute, man. Are are you a Kansas City native or yeah, I grew close up, to here? Yeah, I grew up in Parkville, up okay. north, north of the river. Outstanding, great. And uh, after that, did you go away to school or just decide it's time to work a job or what? No, I, um, I, I've never lived anywhere but Kansas City. Um, okay. I've, I've always lived here. I've traveled a lot, but I've, I've, this has always been home. And uh, I actually, I didn't go to college right away after high school. I waited a couple of years and then um, decided to, to pay my own way through college. Um, you know, my parents didn't go to college. I'm the first one in my family had even attempted, so... You know, I, I got a job as a bartender, and I was paying my own way through college. At the time, I just went to Penn Valley Community College. Great. And uh, I was focusing on business. I've always had a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, you know, so I was focusing on uh, business. But literally, by the time I got my two-year associate's degree, I was like, I'm done, because I know what I want to do. Yeah. yeah, and I knew that I wanted to pursue opening up my own bar one day, so I just started focusing on that. So at that point, why spend two more years doing world history? It didn't, it didn't did make sense to me. I never felt compelled to, like, I needed a college degree sure. in order to be successful. I felt like, you know, if I pursue something that I really care about that also has a practical application, you know, as far as opening up my own business, I mean, you can't really do that while, you know, spending so much time and energy and money on well, school as well. And I think it sounds like that's a lesson that we're learning generationally now. Yeah. That, that you learned ahead of some other folks that school for the sake of school right. not really valuable when, right. like you said, you had a path. You knew the skills you needed. Yeah. So why not go out and get them? So Absolutely. At that point, um, did you just keep tending bar or was it at that point you just started something on your own or what? Um, you know, I, I wanted to. Uh, I was certainly eager to start something on my own as quickly as possible. Uh, it's, it's, there's not always a clear, 
you know, way to do that or way to go about it. Um, so I just started, const- I was obsessing over it. You know, I wanted to just figure out a way, somehow, some way, you know, make it happen. But I did, after about five years of bartending um, at Pierpont's, I was on the oh, opening, opening staff at Pierpont's Union Station, awesome. opened back in 1999. That was my first real bartending job. Uh, I was only 21, and I worked there for five years, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, I, I truly loved that job. It was, it was great. Um, but I left after five years and took a job as a sales rep for uh, a local uh, boutique wine distributor. Okay. Um, and so I, I started selling wine. And the reason for that was, you know, I learned a lot about wine uh, at Pierpont, and I got my sommelier certification and all that. But I really wanted to, I, I looked at it like, if I'm going to open up my own bar or restaurant one day, um, I can't be, I can't have only this one experience at Pierpont's because everybody does it differently, right? Okay. And so I think, I thought, like, if I, if I become a sales rep, um, I'll learn more about the import side of it. I'll get to work with other bars and restaurants and see how they run their business, you know, and get a lot more insight and also move around a little bit more and meet more people. I just felt like it would open some doors. So and it did. A real... Uh, a real focus broadening of, yeah. okay, these are skills that I, I think I want. Let's go out and see what's out there. Well, obviously, you know, if you own a restaurant uh, or a bar, uh, you have to deal with distributors, right? You have to buy from sure. distributors. And um, I felt like getting that experience behind the scenes would give me insight in, into that part of the, the business and, and put me in a better position to be uh, successful as an operator. So do you see that still helping as you fast forward to starting things like your own distillery that then has Absolutely. to work upstream of the distributor? No question about it. <laughs> you know, That's and still there. Yeah, I mean, you, you, yeah, you you learn a lot. You know, being on that side of things, and cool. you know, to be honest, I, I hated it. I, I didn't enjoy being a sales rep. It kind of took the joy out of what what I loved about wine and the restaurant business. You know, it was it was a, a bit of a grind, but um, it was. A very valuable learning experience, and has also translated into what we're doing now with the distillery. And, and now I work with distributors uh, currently in 21 states around the country. Yeah, so that's so, <laughs> you know you, you know what those guys on the ground are going through. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, very good, man. That's that's pretty cool in the sales uh, profession to to know that somebody's you know had had a time where they drug the bag and. Yeah. Uh, Oh yeah, did the cold calls? Oh, that's man. not always easy. Lots of windshield time. <laughs> well, that's good, man. So after that, did you finally get to do your own thing? Yeah, or? I opened JP Wine Bar. Okay, uh, right after um, after only a year and a half of uh, being a wine rep, nice. I I just knew I missed it, you know, and I missed being behind the bar, and I still had this goal of opening up my own place. Still didn't know exactly how I was going to do it, but I met a lot of people in the restaurant business in Kansas City during that time. And so I'm one of those people where like, I feel if I feel strongly enough about what I need, what I want to accomplish and what I want to do, even if I don't know how to do it, I'm going to take that leap of faith because I figure I'll, I'll figure it out on the, on the way down. You know what I mean? Start the bike so, downhill. So I literally, yeah, I literally gave my notice at, at the distributor um, without any plan. I had no, I didn't have a job lined up. I didn't have a gig lined up. And so my boss, when I gave notice, was like, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, I really, really want to open my own bar. And he's like, well, how are you going to do that? I'm like, I don't know, but I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to put myself in a position where I have no, I have, there's no room to fail. Like, I have to make it happen. I'm going to force myself. You know what I mean? And that's, that's what the world. Yeah. 
That's great. And then so, so I quit. Um, uh, I quit that job on December 31st of 2005 and opened JP Wine Bar in May of 06. So a five-month turnaround yeah. from no concept to open doors. That's pretty quick. I found an investor. Right? Um, I found an investor. And, uh, you know, we were, I knew the investor from, from being in the wine business. And I had also traveled to Chicago quite a bit and experienced a lot of uh, really cool progressive wine bars out there that that really didn't exist in Kansas City at the time. Like most of back then, if you wanted to get a nice glass of wine in Kansas City, you had pretty much had to go to a nice restaurant. You know, there were no bar atmospheres that focused on wine. And so that's what I wanted to do. In general, 06 would have been very, I guess, kind of the the start of the bell curve for the real interest in the wine industry and mainstreaming of craft cocktails, distilleries. That was beginning around that time, too. So it was really the upshot, and you're there. Absolutely. So Crossroads wasn't even really developing at that time. No. No, we were... um, we were way ahead of that curve. I mean, there were other places there, but we were at, so JP Wine Bar it was at 16th and Walnut. It's where Tannen is now. So okay, yeah. that's the space that's known as Tannen Wine Bar. And back then, you know, it was just a empty old brick warehouse building, you know. And it just, well, the Sprint Center was a giant hole in the ground. <laughs> Power and Light District wasn't uh, even, hadn't even begun construction yet. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, businesses around that area were not there, like Nara and Sullivan. And obviously the Coffin Center wasn't there. And it, you know what I mean? Like, you yeah. know, we were really on a little young. bit of an island. I mean, there were a handful of businesses in the crossroads that were definitely more of a pioneer than we were, you know. But um, like Lydia's and Jackstack, like down in the freight house, like they were around back in the late 90s, early 2000s. But, but yeah, it's uh, it, it, was a, it was a little bit scary, a little bit risky. And a lot of people said I was nuts for going into <laughs> a neighborhood that was uh, so underdeveloped. But people loved it. Like, it... It did far better than we thought it would. It was so, it was a hit. What just from a business standpoint, what does it feel like that first night you unlock and open the door? <laughs> is um, it? it is the most surreal combination of excitement and joy and sheer terror. Really? I mean, is anyone going to walk through that? <laughs> well, you, you know, you, you could be open 10 years and still have that fear. I saw that really? nightmare that one day, like, people are just not going to care You're anymore. Like, coming. stop coming. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, you always kind of have that, that panic a little bit. But I think that's a good thing. For, I think entrepreneurs should have that fear. It kind of drives them a little bit. Sure. You know? Well, then you're always looking for... Not the next thing, but the next right way to speak to a constantly. It, you know, you can never get too comfortable and like just rest, rest on your laurels and say, "Oh, we made it." You know what I mean? You always have to like, you always have to be thinking about how you can get better and how you can innovate and how you can stay relevant. You know, because there's always someone else new that's going to open and people are going to be excited about it. So, you know, keeping a bar or restaurant open for that amount of time is it's tough. Yeah, it's a tough business. So it was mid-06, you, you started JP's. How long did that one take you? Did that one last for you? Yeah, I had it for two years. So okay. we opened on uh, May 5th of 2006. And um, my business partner and I had a little bit of a, a falling out disagreement on the future of the company, like what we want to do. Like I said, it was very, very successful. It, it did a lot better than we projected. And uh, we had differing opinions on how what the next steps were, essentially. Sure. She wanted to open up another location in Leewood, Kansas, 
Um, I was not interested in doing that. I wanted to focus on the crossroads. I felt like the crossroads still had a tremendous amount of growth ahead of it. And I wanted to do more of a, uh, build a, a company that was more of a, you know, JP Weinbar was JP Weinbar. And then Manifesto was already in my head. I already had the idea for Manifesto at that time. Okay. Um, so we, we had, and she wanted to turn it into like JP Weinbar being a chain, that kind of thing. So yeah. at that point we just parted ways and, um, and then I started working on opening Manifesto. Now, did Manifesto come about because I, I, I've heard you talk about it before that, you know, kind of the by reservations was almost forced because of the space, right? Yeah, to a great extent, the reservation system was, uh, is, well, you know, kind of by the space because it's so small, right? right? So my, my, my concern was, I had a lot of concerns, but if you got 45 seats, you know, and it's... This, it, it creates a lot of buzz and people get really excited about it and show up. Like, are they going to want to stand in a line for, you know, who knows how long to get in and how realistic is that? You know what I mean? So yeah. you can kind of get, you can burn out quickly and that way. Do you feel like Kansas City is not the town that people stand at the velvet rope? You, you know yeah, what I mean? Well, I don't, I don't like standing at the velvet rope anywhere. Right. I think it's, I think it's pretentious and I think that it's, it's inhospitable. Um, so really the reservation system for Manifesto was adding another layer of hospitality to a bar. Yeah, it's not keeping you, know? you out. It's giving no, no, you a no, no, chance no. to make sure. No, and that's what I and that's what I try to convey to everyone, even our our hosts and hostesses and door people. Like, like you are not here as a uh, uh, you're not a, a door person. You're not a bouncer. You're not here to keep people out. You are here to get them in. And the idea is to get as many people in as possible. You know, but offering reservations while really, really challenging from a management perspective, from a business perspective, it's hard to do that in a bar setting. Um, it, it gave us this ability to provide another level of hospitality that didn't exist at any other bars. So instead of just saying, okay, we'll, we'll manage a, a flood of people with you're extending your hospitality process out yes, another level. Absolutely. I like that. Uh, that's... It's customer focused. Right? When you think about other, yeah, of course. <laughs> not so. You think about other bars on. that, well, yeah, you can make a reservation if it's a bottle service nightclub. You got to spend like three hundred bucks, right? You know what I mean? It's just a cash grab. You know what I'm saying with the idea of manifesto was, we if you want to come, if you want to be here, and if you say I've got a group of four or a group of two or a group of six or whatever, and I want to be there at eight thirty on Friday night. Well, just like if we were a restaurant, sure, I'm gonna if you take the time to reach out to us and make that reservation. We're going to be expecting you, and we're going to be ready for you. Yeah, you know. Well, and let's. It to me that makes it more accessible for someone that maybe it's not their every night scene, or maybe it's a special time, yeah, you know, a special night for them. They can make that plan. They can get in the place they want. That's a good thing. Yeah. So interesting. So with manifesto, again, you were kind of on the early, early flare up of the, the speakeasy resurgence. Uh, in, in the states, with places like you know, please don't tell and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, and it it's a cool idea. It's yeah. just fun, right? Um, what was the one thing that you really wanted to create there? Was it was it shining on the craft of the drinks, or, or what was? It? Well, obviously, everything everything is built around you know a concept like that. It's built around the cocktail. However, um, you can make the best, most extravagant, most beautiful handcrafted cocktails in the world. And if people don't have a good experience, it doesn't matter. They're not going to come back. You know what I mean? Hard the quality <laughs> has to be there, but everything else has to be it has to play a role as well. The ambiance, uh, the feel, the hospitality. You know, you can't you can't 
serve those drinks with an attitude just because you think the drinks are better than everyone else. Like that's that's BS, <laughs> you know. Um, but really, with like the whole concept of manifesto being that it was it's a you know speakeasy so to speak, um, you know the hidden uh, entrance in the back alley with no sign and yeah. text messaging reservations and all that thing. The goal for me was to create a, an experience for the guests before they ever walk in the door. I wanted people to feel excitement and maybe even a little bit of suspense and anxiety before they even sit down and look at the menu. You know, sure. I think that enhances the experience and it makes the whole thing more dramatic and more powerful. Well, it makes that first sip that much more exciting yeah. of everything. Right. So very cool, man. Well, I don't know if people wonder or ask you this a lot, but you know, at some point, I, I know you've traveled a lot, um, Chicago, New York, for you know, consulting uh, of other menus and mm-hmm. drinks. How many? How many of them have tried to pull you out of Kansas City permanently? Oh, well, I've <laughs> had you know, I've had opportunities. I'd say you know, New York is probably the, the biggest one. Where for a long time I thought I might move to New York. Sure. I, I, I really enjoy it there. I have a lot of friends there. Um, a lot of people doing some really cool things, and, and there have been opportunities. But honestly, like the moment that I, I had uh, an opportunity to open up a business and, and invest like strongly in Kansas City, you know, be a business owner, be a property owner in Kansas City, and, and have a chance to make hopefully make Kansas City better. At that point, the, any idea of, of moving, you know, went out of my mind. It it, it, it wasn't going to happen. It's funny, I think that seems to be a common theme for a lot of folks that that we see right now, like you are doing really excellent things that are leading the charge for Casey. Mm-hmm. You know, whether they originated here or not, once they're here, they realize, man, this is a great supportive town that you can make a really big impact with one business, let alone right. once that branches out to three or four. I mean, just on the basic employment front, right. you know, you're employing I'm guessing into the hundreds of people in our town. That's um, a good thing. Yeah, we're getting there. We're working. That's that's part of it too. I mean, yeah. that's like that's something I, I really get a lot of joy from. Is uh, you know, because owning a business is really really hard. But you know, it makes me feel better when I when I know that we're doing something good for the people that live here and, and our employees, and we're taking good care of them. Um, you know, that, that means a lot. The days of. Uh, fashionable creation of a business just to be a money machine seems to be kind of done where a responsible business owner is what folks want to see and who they want to patronize, who they want to work for, things like that. Right. So, well, that's great to hear, man. Well, so now you're, you're helping craft um, menus and new cocktails for places like Parquet. Mm -hmm. You're still involved with uh, your own restaurant venture with Rieger Manifesto still going strong. And then, hey, why not? Why not revive an old Kansas City whiskey? Yeah, um, yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> that was not expected. Um, you know, like I said, my my goal and my dream was to open up a bar and restaurant. That was, you know, for for a long time, that was, I couldn't see anything beyond that. And you know, even accomplishing that, I think, is really really hard. You know, not everybody Absolutely. that wants to do it gets the chance to actually follow through and make that reality. And I feel really, really fortunate that I was, I, I had that chance. So the whole distillery thing was a complete surprise. 
that was not uh, not part of any plan or anything like that. But you know, it, it happened because of the Rieger, because of Manifesto and the Rieger. And so, the year after we opened Manifesto, I had an opportunity to take over the first floor of that old building. Um, I partnered with Howard Hanna, chef, to uh, yeah. to uh, create the Rieger and. All I knew, all we knew about the concept that we were going to do is we were going to call it the Rieger because the building was built in 1915 and we knew that it had been known originally as the Rieger Hotel. So but I didn't know anything beyond that. You know, so I had no idea. So started digging into the history of the building, like looking for old photos from the, the early 1900s or 1920s, you know, just looking for any sort of inspiration for the uh, design of the restaurant, the decor, uh, the vibe, and discovered by pure accident, that there was a whiskey distillery in Kansas City dating back to 1887, and it was actually owned by the same family that owned the Rieger Hotel. So imagine, I mean, the, the sheer I level of coincidence, yeah, how does that know, it, it, it doesn't sound real, but it was like an immediate, I mean, I felt an obligation to bring it back. I was obsessed with the idea of it and in love with learning about the brand and the history. I didn't even know that there ever was a whiskey distillery in Kansas City no, until that point. I don't, I don't think, think anybody did. You know, in a similar vein, it's, it's a lot like, um, you know, the Mulebach Hotel. I don't yeah. think a lot of people wow. realize that there used to be a brewery <laughs> yeah. well, with that yeah. family and yeah. stuff like that. So that's interesting that uh, it was something that was essentially dead. Yeah. And it couldn't be a better connection. Right. <laughs> no, it was amazing. It was a... It was an incredible moment, and I just—I remember it very vividly, just thinking, "Oh my God, I have to bring back this brand. Like I have to. It's not even a matter of a choice." <laughs> so, what I mean? So, you get the idea. Yeah. Tell somebody who's the first person to say, "Dude, that's crazy." Oh, my investors were, were just completely uh, pissed off at me. Just again, um, they're like, "What are you doing? You know, what are you talking about?" Because we we hadn't even opened the restaurant yet. We were under construction. You know, and here I am, like, fantasizing about this distillery. So, um, the timing was not the best, but um, I just it just felt like the right thing, you know? So, as crazy as it sounds, it just felt compelled to, like, have to make it happen. And then um, I met uh, Andy Rieger, the, uh, you know, great, great, great grandson of the founder, the guy that started it all back in 1887. And Andy was, I think, 23 when I first met him, when... We opened the restaurant. We opened the Rieger restaurant. He had heard uh, that we were uh, uh, opening a restaurant in that building that his great great grandfather built. You know, and he came in and wanted to see it and say hi and offer some support. And I was immediately like, "Like, dude, we need to partner and bring back your family's so, distillery." Essentially, a guy walks into a bar and yeah. look what comes. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's interesting because was he able to give you some more? Color on the family, and oh, the history, and things question. like that. Yeah, he did. Um, you know, he obviously knew about his family's history with the oh, hotel sure. and the story. He was living in Dallas, Texas at the time. Okay. Um, he, he had, I think he was just out of college and working uh, for an investment bank down there. And uh, he, yeah, he knew about his family's history, and so he started to share some some stuff. In fact, the second time he came into the Rigory brought uh, some old photos of like his grandparents, great grandparents, and and added some context around you know the, what information I had at that point. You know, sort of filling some of the gaps. How fun um, for their family to start you know rebuilding that history. As well. Yeah, yeah, it's I think it's it's remarkable. But you know, as soon as I met him, I was like, well, I can't bring this back without you. 
you know, I mean, it's your name, it's your family, you know, it wouldn't be right. <laughs> Just like, hijack yeah. it? Right. Um, so, you know, it took us a while to kind of figure it out and, and, um, and for Andy to realize that it was something that he really wanted to do. You well, know, but that's, that's interesting, too, because you said uh, he was working in investment banking in Dallas. Yeah. So he's probably, at that time, building some business skill sets that were very oh, valuable when it comes to this, right? That is the understatement oh, really? of a lifetime. Really? I mean, seriously, aside from the fact that his last name is Rieger and <laughs> it was his family that built it, um, what he brings to our company, is, I can't measure. You know, it's immeasurable. I mean, I'm, the, I'm, I'm much more, even though I've been... Uh, you know, a, a moderately successful business owner. I'm not a, a business person no, in that sense. Guy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm much more of the creative uh, type entrepreneur, you know, the idea type person, like really driven to like try and make things happen. But um, I kind of I kind of get by on the other parts, like the you know the the, the not so fun parts of being a business owner. You know, the finances and dealing with the the banks and the insurance companies right. and the lawyers and you know it all that part's no fun right but but it's gotta be done <laughs> right especially and, if there's gonna be scale exactly and Andy is a genius at that you know he is an absolute brilliant has an absolutely brilliant you know practical mindset for that and I don't know if it's left brain or right brain or type A or type B but whatever it is we are the exact opposites yeah, you know and it works well, out great and how many stories you hear of a creative that has something that's awesome yeah and it, it, it starts and it goes and it flares up and then it, it kind of crashes because they can't handle that business side right so oh it's, it's very true you know uh, it happens all the time you know you can see businesses that you know, they might be packed every night and have a line out the door, and yet they're losing money. You know, just because you've got to like really pay attention to that. So that's hard. Yeah. Well, especially, in, and I, I've never been in the hospitality, the restaurant, uh, bar business, but I'm told that th- without controlling that business side, the margins can be almost impossible. To it, it's really true. It, it's um, it's a very very difficult business. Like if you want to just get into, uh, if you want to invest in a business to make money. Stay away from the restaurant business, you know, because your margins just aren't good. Um, even the, the most successful restaurants out there, bars out there, are lucky. I mean, if you're hitting 10% net profit after it's all said and done, you're crushing it. Wow. Yeah. That is, uh, that's tight. Yeah. So there's not much room for error. Yeah. So you really have to uh, not only design it well, but run it well. Yeah. Interesting. Well, what's... Uh, of all these things you've had a chance to do here in Kansas City, Ryan, what's, it's probably not a fair question. What's your favorite that, that, that's happened with all this? Oh, man. Um, it's tough, man. There's so many so many things that make me really happy. I mean, being a part of the, uh, the downtown renaissance and, and seeing the crossroads evolve over all these years, you know, having been a... Uh, a resident and business owner in the crossroads for 12 years now um, and seeing how far it's come that, that's, that's that feels great just amazingly um, different isn't it? yeah it, it's incredible to see how far Kansas City has come and also like resurrecting Kansas City's history with Jay Rieger and Phil with Andy and getting to tell that story you know and share that with Kansas City and revive a part of Kansas City's history that had been forgotten for 95 years that nobody knew about yeah. Well, and you guys are actively doing that still. Uh, weren't you digging out a tunnel? A oh yeah. Oh yeah. Ago? We, just, we just finished that. Yeah. 
Yeah, you had to find some cool stuff. Yeah, there were some old broken bottles and some old uh, like like first generation electrical condos, like porcelain electrical condos from like you know the early 1900s. See, now all we need is for somebody to visit the uh, uh, the old tunnel that goes from downtown down to the uh, really cool. yeah. West Bottom uh, Street. Yeah, yeah. We need somebody street. to uh, lead a charge on renovating that yeah. whole thing and maybe line it with some great bars. That would be cool. That would be pretty amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, very good, man. I always, uh, I always am curious. I find that most folks here in Kansas City seem to have a favorite cause or something that they really like to work on. Uh, what's special to you here in Kansas City that you like to help with? You mean like from a charitable perspective? Yeah. For yeah. Charities? Uh, we do a lot of work for charities. I mean, it's fun. We get, we get hit up all the Lots time. Lots of requests. <laughs> yeah. sure. um, the ones that, see, that, that we do the, uh, the most with, we've done quite a bit with uh, Big Brothers and Big Sisters. Um, we, uh, you know, obviously have a dog person being here at Bar-K, and so we've worked with uh, uh, the local animal shelters and, and done charity work for them uh, in, in various capacities. March of Dimes is a big one that I think is one of the, the better run uh, charity events in KC. March of Dimes uh, uh, event every year, which is coming up in October. Uh, and that's um, their Bikers for Babies one? Um, it's the Chefs one. It's like the, oh, okay. uh, yeah, some, it's a... I forget the name of it now. Signature Chefs thing. Yeah. Very cool. So um, they have a few big ones that they do. Yeah. Year. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we try to be really, really proactive on, on that front as well. Very cool, man. Well, you know, you're probably the proprietor of what a lot of people answer this question with, but I always want to know from the guests, what are what are your hidden gems for Kansas City? Oh, man. You know, things that, that you can pinpoint as... You know, it could be a bar, restaurant, park, sure. A, a favorite tree to sit under. I don't know. Everybody's got something different. Man. Yeah. Um. You know, uh, YJ's in the crossroads. You know, it's been there. It's it's you know it's iconic. It's kind of a, a landmark okay. establishment. Um, it's been there forever. I've always loved YJ's, and I used to live just literally around the corner from there. So, nice. Um. You know, lots of fond memories of. Uh, hanging out there at you know four o'clock in the morning with live jazz and people spilling out into the streets, you know, um, so that's really cool. Um, man, uh, I think well, you're seeing hidden things. Most of people, I mean, like the barbecue, the barbecue establishments, you know, that are the most most revered. I think are, are really special. Um, you mentioned the Mulebach Hotel earlier, and I'm I'm totally I've always been fascinated with that building and uh, and what they have there. It's so beautiful and sadly so underutilized. Um, it should be, you know, it should be really something uh, that Kansas City could be proud of, but it's just not. It doesn't get used. Yeah, not quite. Not yeah. quite what it used to be for sure. Well, cool, man. Well, I appreciate you taking so much time to just. Kind of talk about yourself with us and, and let folks know because I just find that the guys that stay here in Kansas City, there's usually a pretty special reason, you know, oh, yeah. whether whether you did start here or not. Um, love to see the. Uh, there's the gotta be a, there's gonna be a special you know? reason when it's you know this hot in the summer and, <laughs> that then we'll go, and then we'll go you know through six or eight weeks of like solid ice. I mean, you know, there's something special about a place if you're willing to to deal with that every year. Now, on a, on a high note, do those changes create unique challenges for a distillery? Or is that um, no. More on so, the inter- so interestingly yeah, enough, right? um, 
severe uh, extreme temperature fluctuations is really good. Really? For aging whiskey. That's so different from like Absolutely. The, uh, the brewing side where right. the temperature control well, is because the, that's because the alcohol right? is so much lower and it's so much more volatile okay. um, because of that. So the same with wine. So like, you know, if you have wine, you know, whether it's in barrel and aging or if it's in bottle, either way, you can't have severe uh, temperature fluctuations. You want to keep it at cellar temperature okay. the whole time. So you why know? is that so different for Because there's so much distilling. alcohol. Really? Because you're talking about such higher uh, levels of alcohol. It's, it's, you know, resilient. You know, it's much more resilient. But the reason that it's actually good is like, you know, if you're talking about aging bourbon or rye or something, you're, you're talking about aging these whiskeys for four or five years and beyond. Um, the reason you age them for that long is because over time, it gradually picks up flavors from the barrel itself, right? Okay. And as, you know, temperatures go from really, really hot to really, really cold, what happens to wood? Wood expands and contracts, and in that process, the liquid uh, in the barrel seeps in and out of the wood and picks up more flavor, uh, slightly oxidizes uh, a little bit over time and, and mellows out and, and becomes much more complex. So uh, that's why it's actually really... Um, really, really good for for aging whiskey. There you the go. climate in Kentucky is not so much different than no. Here. I mean, we're it's pretty similar. Same parallel yeah. Here, so, well, another perfect thing about Kansas City. Yep. I love it. That sounds like a good thing to shut it down on. Again, thank you very much. Um, where Where do you see things going for you next? Where are people going to find you on the next big project? I would just say, you know, keep your eye on the on the East Bottoms. You know, it's a it's a a uh, neighborhood in Kansas City that I think is severely under, uh, you know, underutilized and like nobody really knows about it. Under love, you know, with Knucklehead. I got to give a ton of credit to Knuckleheads for having been there for what 15 years at least, unbelievable, and being considered one of the better blues bars in the country. And they're in a neighborhood that is like so far removed from everything else in KC, and it's hard to get to. Yeah, you know, it's not our, easy to find. Our distillery is down there. Uh, local pig has been down there for a few years, but there's really nothing else to draw people in. And it's also like literally surrounded with railroad tracks, so it's it's physically hard to get. There. At um, times, it's almost dangerous know, to get to it. Absolutely, certainly when you're there. Absolutely, but I think I, I think we'll see some cool things happen with that yeah. with that neighborhood in the in the coming years. Well, I appreciate the tip, man. Thanks yeah. again. Have a great day, and uh, really enjoyed it. Hope folks uh, like hearing about what you're doing. Thanks, I appreciate it. guys as usual i'm fairly fascinated by somebody here in kansas city everything that ryan has been involved in and made happen here in our town just amazing and he's he's carrying the kansas city torch out to other places and really building a name not just for himself but for our town so get out there and support guys like this go to your local store and buy you a bottle of rieger the whiskey is fantastic and get out there to the restaurants or make a reservation at manifesto support guys that are really loving our town and really making it even better every day look forward to seeing you guys on the next episode and remember if you know somebody you think would be a great guest on the show just let me know scott at caseygreats.com i'll see you next time